The following program is brought to you by the Tennessee Broadband Association. Lead Tennessee Radio, conversations with the leaders moving our state forward. We look at the issues shaping Tennessee's future, rural development, public policy, broadband, health care, and other topics impacting our communities. And now, here's your host of Lead Tennessee Radio, Lavoie Knowles. Hello, I'm Lavoie Knowles, the Executive Director of the Tennessee Broadband Association. Our guest today is Senator Farrell Hale, Senate Speaker Pro Tem. Senator Hale, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Senator Hale represents Sumner, Trousdale, and parts of Davison County in the Tennessee Senate. He serves on a number of committees, including the important Finance, Ways, and Means Committee, as well as the Education Committee. He and his wife make their home in Gallatin and are small business owners. The couple have four children and seven grandchildren, and they're also involved in their community and their church. Senator Hale, let's start our conversation today about your upbringing and where you were raised and what led you to your early exposure to to the political process. Well, first off, we need to go back and correct. It's not seven grandchildren. It's now eight grandchildren. So we we need to get that record straight first off before we go any farther uh, in the conversation today. But thank you for having me here. Uh, Honored to be here. Uh, when we talk about uh, where I was raised, I'm a country boy come to town would be the comment that I would make. Grew up on the farm with my dad farming, uh, M Farm All tractor for those folks that are of the rural community and, and familiar with that tractor of years ago. Uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to grow up on a farm. Went to school in Gallatin Public High School. Uh, and my mother was a school teacher, so have that background also. Uh, went to Lipscomb for a couple of years and then to UT Pharmacy School down in Memphis. And then uh, came just straight back home uh, uh, to get back to the community. Uh, really never considered going anyplace else very much after that. Uh, I married my high school sweetheart uh, the last year in pharmacy school. And so we were both anxious to come home. In fact, I married my neighbor's daughter is exactly <laughs> what, what took place. And we live on that farm today and continue farming, uh, the, put the farms together, and we still raise cattle and hay uh, on those farms. Well, that's great. That's a huge success story. Um, we feel very close to you because um, our, predominantly, our members are predominantly in the rural area as well. And we feel like you can relate to what our members are going through, the, the – um, the low density in the rural areas, and, and we, even though some of your areas may be a little more suburban, we feel like you're one of our rural uh, counterparts. And I appreciate that. My district goes from uh, very rural, Trousdale County, all of Sumner County, which has both rural and metropolitan uh, aspects to it, and I have a little bit of Davidson County, which is Nashville. So I cover the gamut of that. You do. Very, very good. Thank you very much. You serve as Senate Speaker Pro Tem. Uh, not every everyone is aware of the responsibilities of this leadership position. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you uh, this important role involves? Uh, like I said earlier, country boy come to town, never expected to be serving as a, a state senator, was not involved in politics uh, whatsoever uh, growing up or uh, certainly in my early years in the pharmacy. Just uh, was very low-key uh, politically and was asked to, to serve, uh, to run for the Senate, and did that, uh, won an election, and this is my eighth year of serving uh, as an elected. I was appointed prior to that for 100 days. Um, and this is an important uh, 
seat to sit in, uh, not only just as a state senator and then even more so as, as Speaker Pro Tem. Uh, I serve at the pleasure of the lieutenant governor. Uh, so a lot of my responsibility falls under uh, that umbrella of helping him and helping our members, helping them navigate uh, the bills that they have, uh, that they are presenting and what the issues might be and, and either encouraging or sometimes discouraging or helping direct some of that legislation. Certainly do that in concert with the lieutenant governor and where he wants to see the state go in, in particular legislation. Uh, I'm responsible for what we call a bill review. We bring our caucus together prior to session and just go over bills. No debating of the bill, just what does this bill do? And uh, there can be questions asked, but there cannot be any debate that takes place in that process. So I'm responsible for making sure that that protocol is followed uh, as we go through that bill review. Uh, certainly, as a uh, uh, sitting in this seat, a, a speaker pro tem, I get the opportunity to fill in a speaker sometimes. The lieutenant governor will call on me. Part of my responsibility is if he can't be here for some reason, then I step into that role and, and do provide that leadership uh, when the Senate is in session. And that's a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy being able to do that. The difference between caucus chairman and my role is that the caucus chairman is probably a more political type position, where mine is more of a legislative type position in, in what's policy and procedure going forward, and I serve on rules that also affect that. Right. Well, it's a very important position, and we appreciate you serving there because we feel like that uh, in your leadership role, you can definitely have a voice for, for our members, too. And we have, of course, a member in your area, one of your constituents, and uh, but we feel very fortunate to have you in that leadership role. Thank you. Thank you. As I said in the opening, you and your wife are small business owners. Uh, why are small businesses important to Tennessee's economy, and how does this impact the way you approach legislation? Okay, a couple of things. As a uh, farm owner, continue to operate the farm, I'm a small business there. I was a independent pharmacy owner for over 40 years. Uh, I have sold that business. I'm no longer uh, an owner of a business. In fact, uh, I'm no longer practicing pharmacy actively. But that 40-plus years of experience in the pharmacy and the retail certainly brings an awareness of how poor, important business is to our community, of the jobs that small business provides, and for the... Um, Really, the foundation of a community is their small businesses. And so I come from that perspective in in that arena. Right. After 40 years, whether you own it now or not, you know the ins and outs of a small business. You do, <laughs> and you still have that, that small business mindset of exactly. this is what our businesses need to thrive. And it's not only our businesses, it's what our communities need out of our small businesses to thrive. Right, right. Absolutely. What particular challenges do you see facing the rural population of our state today? Well, I think there's several that we could identify pretty quick. Certainly, health care is one of them. And as we have, as broadband expands, we're able to expand the telemedicine aspect of that, which I think is really important. The Let me give you an example of um, a little bit of the perception that I think is takes place in our communities. 
uh, I live in Galton. We have a regional hospital there. You go 40 miles out from that, and EMS picks up a patient, and rather than going to that local 20-bed hospital, they want to come to the larger hospital of Galton. You pick somebody up in Galton, and rather than going to Galton, they want to come to Nashville. And that's a perception that's in our communities. That's all across the state. And so when you think about that perception and how EMS works, we also have to think about, all right, how do we now provide health care for those for our individuals in the rural area. And certainly the telehealth is an avenue that we can do that with. It's not all-encompassing, but it's certainly a place for us to be working through. Right. I think it's very important. Uh, And as you know, the Tennessee Broadband Association is comprised of cooperatives and independent telecommunications companies that are investing millions of dollars in their fiber networks in Tennessee, and largely in rural areas. And I would want to add that... um, our membership has actually committed to a $400 million investment uh, starting in 2020 through 2022, a three-year period. Uh, what role do you see broadband playing in rural development? Well, I'm going to back up to the previous question just a little bit, and okay, then that sure. will lead into this. Uh, certainly, uh, what's important uh, or what's challenging in our rural areas, uh, the health is – Education is, and I think also the of retaining our knowledge, retaining folks that are trained, that grow up in our public school system, and then they go off to be educated someplace else, getting them back into our rural area. Uh, so there's a lot of challenges in that uh, prospect. And as we think about um, access to care and, and access to education, uh, broadband in our rural area becomes extremely important uh, for us. So um, I'm not sure that I've answered your question, but I I thought we need to talk about that also. Absolutely. I think you have covered the question in the fact that broadband does play a very important role in rural development, and that's that's part of the foundation. And in business also, brick and mortar are not the only small businesses out there. There's a lot of mom-and-pop businesses that are now online, broadband, that uh, 10 years ago we had no idea would be a potential. And so rather than have that brain drain out of our rural areas, we can keep those individuals, those entrepreneurs, those small business-minded people that have great ideas, they don't have to go to the urban area anymore with broadband. They can stay in their community, they can support their community, they can grow their community uh, through the broadband approach to business. Right. I know and I've, I've spent several years on the local, on my local um, uh, rural development board, and in the first years of my tenure, uh, when a company was looking at coming to your area, uh, they looked at roads, sewer, water, uh, that sort of thing, electricity. And then as the time progressed, one of the first questions was, what speeds of broadband do you provide? And that was even before the roads and the sewer in some cases. Right. So that's the foundation of, of, of creating rural development, I think, in, in our areas. And and I would add to that that I, I really believe, and maybe I'm prejudiced, but I really believe that our rural community has a draw that the urban community cannot have now that's not a hundred percent of course because there's a lot of draw to urban to be where the everything's happening 
But there's a lot of folks that have a real appreciation of rural life and, and being able to walk outdoors and and smell the air and, and right. enjoy the country and and participate in the local community and, and know your mayor personally and, and know your councilman and those type of things. So I think there is a draw that to the rural area that broadband helps provide for individuals. Totally agree. Um, the rural quality of life is different from the metropolitan quality of life and and uh, it's exciting to come downtown, but it's also good to go home. It is, absolutely. As a pharmacist, and you've kind of covered this already, but I'll kind of re- re- revisit it. Uh, you see firsthand the impact of health care on its, on its citizens, particularly in the rural areas. As an association, we believe broadband plays a very critical role in expanding health care access through telemedicine technology. That's why we're working on a statewide rural telehealth initiative. In your view, how important is broadband and telemedicine in increasing access to care, especially in the rural areas? I think it's paramount uh, of importance. Uh, If you can, we've got to move our population to wanting to be healthy, for one thing. And we also have to create a place where that there is a personal relationship and if you cannot build that, if there's not individuals in the community that you can build that personal health relationship with as a provider, then this is an excellent avenue. You still have that personal relationship. You've got one-on-one. You've got the, the face-to-face that takes place. Uh, and so I think that there's a real avenue and opportunity here to provide in an area that has had a gap in it for a long time. I agree. I think we have to rethink our medical approach to providing health care for our citizens in rural areas. You can't have a hospital, as you mentioned, uh, in every community. But uh, telehealth can play a big part of that, is keeping that person connected to their local doctor. And if we can keep them healthy, we can keep them out of the hospital. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, We're not one of the more healthier states in the countries, but we need to improve upon that. I totally agree. Well, tell us a little bit about your family and why it's important to you as a father and grandfather of eight that uh, we create opportunities to keep our young folks in Tennessee. Well, I'd much rather have them here than uh, out of state. I won't start naming states, but I'd much rather have them in Tennessee, and I'd rather have them close to home where I can see those grandkids growing up and have an influence in their life. And so – that's important. Family's important. Community's important. Uh, so keeping folks uh, close at home. And creating jobs and opportunities to right. keep them here. I, I have five grandchildren myself, and I totally uh, totally agree that we got to find ways to keep uh, the, the technology, the, um, the uh, trained folks in Tennessee to train other Tennesseans. Right. right. What are some of the challenges you, you say ahead, ahead for the state? And what issues are you particularly excited to tackle during this session? Um, During the off-season this fall, uh, I visited about 45 schools within my district. That's a lot of schools to visit. The number one issue that came up was mental health. Uh, Time and time again, mental health came up in the discussion. There would be roundtables of of teachers, uh, principals, administrators and mental health was the number one issue and the focus of that mental health was middle school you've got students there in transition of from going from a child trying to 
to get in adulthood right. taking place and a lot of changes. And so that was a focus that where it was most critical. Our teachers are not prepared. They're not trained. Uh, they're not uh, uh, cope, able to cope with all these issues. And many times when the, these issues arise in the classroom, then that teacher is taken out of the classroom. Teaching stops, and you've got to deal with this issue for, and an issue that they're not trained to deal with. So I was real pleased with the governor's initiative. I talked with him. I, I reported this to him, uh, and I talked with the um, commissioner of uh, mental health and substance abuse along this line that we need to focus in on this. And I thought he came up with a really unique idea of having this trust, this $250 million set aside, and then using the interest off of that to put mental health providers in our schools. Now, we want to do that. These students that have these mental health issues, it's not just that student. It's back at home that there's issues also. So we need to be in a position where not, we're not just treating the student. We're treating the family. And if as we go into this, we want to be able to do that. And certainly, you're going to need more than 8 or $10 million to put all the trained therapeutic counselors that we need in these schools but this is a start and we can build that trust fund where that we can go forward in that and it's not a reoccurring budget item that we have to deal with we'll have the funding to do that just like we do with the tennessee promise right and right. so that i think that this is a huge huge um uh, initiative on the governor's part, and I'm thrilled to support this. Yeah, it was a novel approach the way it, the way he did it, and it's a good, great idea. And until we've uh, kind of delved more into the idea about what's really happening in in uh, uh, younger children, I had no idea that that mental issues was that big a problem. But and I've it's heard, growing. Yeah, I've heard and it's growing. One in five have uh, yeah, a need for a, a counselor of some sort. Right, and. Even in our elementary school, I had some teachers tell me it seems quiet and settled in the room, and she said, I've got a real problem there that I'm really concerned about. And so when you have an elementary teacher say that about a student, an elementary student. It's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. You know, so you've you got to recognize that there's a real issue out here, and it's caused a lot by our opioid crisis, uh, the breakdown of the family. ACEs, I don't know how many, how much you're familiar with ACEs, but that's adverse childhood experiences. The child's brain develops from zero to five years old. 80% of the brain develops during that time. And if you've got chronic ACEs, and those can be sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, incarceration of the parent, divorce, alcoholism, there's just a lot of mental issues in there. A lot goes into that. And the more experiences a child has, then the more that brain development does not take a natural course. And when that doesn't happen, then you're going to see those results in third grade reading levels. So what takes place early on affects children in their learning going forward. And so I'm real concerned about that. We've been uh, uh, pushing promoting safe baby courts, which addresses this. Uh, a judge, it's a separate court. It's like a drug court. It's a separate court that the judge can put a family, if there's children zero to three years of age, put them in this 
scenario and try and get that family stabilized by su- surrounding that family with support services. Here's the good thing about that. There's several good things. Um, one is on the national average, once a child goes into DCS custody, it takes about three years to get them to a permanent home. Under Safe Baby, we're shooting for nine months. Well, look what the benefit to the child, to the family. You may stabilize that family. If that family is unable to come stabilize, you're able to move that child to adoption much quicker. Within that nine-month period is what we're shooting for. And then think what that saves the taxpayer if you're able to to make that rather than it being a three-year, four-year, five-year. And then what have you done to that child? How much benefit that is to that child to get the that home, get a home stabilized for that child, whether it's the biological home or it's an adoptive home. So that's an initiative that that is close to my heart and I've really uh, promoted uh, going forward. That's great ideas. I, I, I agree that you, we have to protect the small uh, children and that zero to five is a very important age. And if, if that decreases it by two-thirds on the, on the placement rate or the turning the home around, then that's that's what we need to do. That's that's great ideas. Again, thank you for joining me today, Senator Hale. Are there any other issues you'd like to speak about before we close? I, I think we've covered quite a few. Uh, there's so many issues out there to talk about. Some certainly the opioid crisis, the uh, bill that I carried a couple of years ago for the governor has decreased the number of prescriptions being written, the number of pills being written for the number of pills that in a medicine cabinet that our children can get and go down a really bad road. Uh, that is working really well, and we describe that as putting speed bumps on the road to addiction. Uh, there are, and also, of course, you've got folks that are addicted to medication, and we really have three groups of folks. Uh, one of them is folks that are in treatment. They're off medication. They're in treatment. Uh, and they're progressing, and that's really good. There's another group that we have in the MAT clinics, MAT, which is medicated uh, assistant treatment where that there's medication involved. Uh, and so that group is trying to get better, and they're, they're working toward. But then we have another group that is uh, very concerning to me, uh, we see even though all the prescriptions have gone down, the dosing has gone down, the number of overdoses have gone up and the number of de- overdose deaths have continued to rise. And that's because folks are going to the black market. They're addicted. And these are really strong um, medications that, are, that once you become addicted, it is really, really difficult to get off of. And these folks are not seeking treatment. They're not, not seeking a legitimate medication they're going to the black market and they're buying percocet and it's laced with fentanyl and thus we're having these overdoses and and so there is not a way at this currently this is a group of folks that have kind of been left out and we're going to try and address that group of individuals and see what we can do to reach out to them to pull them into treatment into one of these other two groups going forward so uh be looking for that on the horizon okay great uh those are all good ideas and and uh we have a few issues in tennessee we've also got a great state to live oh, in. oh it's a great place to live in it you know we have the triple bond rating absolutely uh, no road debt we've had no new debt in tennessee in four years that's phenomenal we're ranked as the uh, most financially stable state in the union. 
just lowest taxes per individual per capita uh, in the nation. And you can just go on with good things that are taking place. Tennessee is no longer 48th in education. Right. We're in the middle of the pack and looking to grow. That's right. A lot of good things happening in Tennessee, and thanks to folks like you and leadership that uh, are helping make things happen. We appreciate your work. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Again, I'm LaVoy Knowles, and this episode of Lead Tennessee Radio is brought to you by the Tennessee Broadband Association, cooperative and independent companies connecting our state's rural communities and beyond with world-class broadband. Thank you for listening and helping us to share these conversations with the people leading Tennessee forward. Thank you.